Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well. I, uh, but I'm not remiss to, to not know that as you came in this room, that's probably not true for every single person because we come into this place and, man, there's some of you that this morning would say, um, man, it's just been a phenomenal week. But some of you, like, let's be honest, there's been deep struggle at different times, and I recognize that. And, and I'm just grateful to God that um, you're here, and, and as we just got to spend some time in worship, isn't it true that even in our singing, God just begins to change our heart, uh, that he just begins to take our attention from what we so often focus on, and I hope just turn it towards him. At least that's um, even what he did for me in that moment. I am so grateful. So grab your Bibles if you have them, turn on your screens, whatever that um, might look like, and go to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and as you make your way there, just a couple of things. Um, if you're new, I, want to so, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. My name's Aaron. I serve as the executive pastor here. So Johnny Pereira, uh, the senior pastor and his family are on sabbatical for the next few weeks. And so if you uh, remember them in your prayers, that would be, I know, a blessing to them as well. Well, today marks kind of a, an awesome day for me. We get to jump into a brand new series. And I'm excited as we go through the next several weeks, we're going we're gonna to look at this series we've entitled One Another, Living Relationally in light of the gospel reality. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible actually contains over 50 what we call these one another statements. In other words, the ways that we're supposed to live relationally with other people because of who we now are in Christ. The fact that, that we are now believers means that everything about our life has been changed. That's an awesome reality, amen? So just think about this for a moment. What's the difference between a Christian who is, who is living out the one another's and a person who lives out the one another's but professes no faith in Christ whatsoever? Like, what, what's the difference between those two? Because I, I would propose that there actually are some fundamental differences. Here they are. Like first, man, there's just a primary purpose. A primary purpose in the way that we live is for God's glory. Man, it it puts God on display. There's another thing that I just come up with this week, and I think it's this, is that if we live for one another's good, it's because God loves us. And we don't do it to get God's love. It's not some kind of exchange deal. You know what, God, I'm going to do really good this week. I'm in a difficult marriage, but you know, if I treat my wife or I treat my husband a certain way, then, then you're just obligated to, to respond to me in certain ways. Man, we don't, God just loved us. And we respond in the way that we live just because of what he's already done for us. And here's the third thing, though. Living for the good of one another means that we live it out regardless of how we've, how we've been treated. Man, it, it, it means that, that the person who's on the receiving end of, of the way that we're going to live relationally, their response to you is indifferent to how you're supposed to treat them. Because you know what the world says, Right? The world says, man, you, you've been just mistreated, just return the favor. Just get on social media and notice the people who go on these long diatribes when they've been mistreated, which I've never understood why people feel the need to place their entire life on social media. If that's you, like, no offense this morning, maybe we're not friends yet on Facebook, nothing personal, but <laughs> listen, let's be honest. 
That's what the world says. Man, so-and-so and so-and-so did all of this to me, and you know what? This is how I'm going to treat them. Jesus says, no. Man, he says, matter of fact, here's what, here's what you need to do. Not only do you need to live out the one another's, but you need to go above and beyond. You need to go the extra mile. Man, to live relationally with one another, it's because the gospel has changed us. And that means that we actually look different and live differently for the glory of God. All right, so as we begin this text, let me just give you a little bit of context on 1 Peter. Here's what's going on. Peter uh, is going to write this letter to a church that now has been scattered. Uh, there is increasing persecution that's beginning to happen. Uh, the, the emperor Nero, who is this fanatical, crazy dude who's going to like burn Christians at the stake in order to light Rome, he's come to power. We're not seeing the fullness yet of that persecution. And Christians are beginning to scatter under the providence of God as the, as the gospel begins to go forth. And then Peter is going to write this letter, and here's the point. He said, I'm going to write to you, and I'm going to give you, in the middle of really difficult days, how it is that you live with a living hope, not only in what God has done, but with one another, because he, like us, knows our tendency that when difficult days come, we want to become self-absorbed. We want to kind of move into ourselves. We want to protect ourselves. Man, I'm not going to live for the good of other people. Don't you see what's happening to me? And so Peter gives us these proclamations. So you should be in 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you just to hold your finger there. But to show you this, let's go over just to the first chapter, first couple of verses. And we'll just see that, that what Peter does is he lays this context for us. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 down through verse 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. So they've just been forced to go all over in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. You see what he says there? Man, your life for, your, for the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. I'm going to write these things to you. May, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Man, if, that's, if you haven't circled that in your Bible or highlighted that, like, that would be a good thing to do because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he, Peter is saying this, I'm going to give you all of these ways that I want you to live, and it's anchored in the fact that the resurrection is true. So when we go over here to chapter 5, where we're going to spend the remainder of our time, and, and we start to look at like how I'm supposed to live towards one another, we can go, it's because the resurrection is true. Like if you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, that you could be encouraged by that. You could actually live out, because of the indwelling power of the Spirit, this truth this morning. So in 1 Peter 5, I want to draw our attention down to verse 5 and 6 because that's our text for this morning. He says this, likewise, you who are younger, means in spiritual maturity in your faith, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. Under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Would you pray with me this morning, and then we're going to jump in. Father, you are abundantly good to us. And we have experienced your goodness even this morning as we have gathered together as your people to praise your name. And God, my prayer for us is that you would take your word and you would make it alive before our eyes. God, that you would allow us to see you in a greater reality. And Father, that you would create in us the the greater desire to obey your word because of what you have done for us on the cross of Calvary. Father, I pray for those who have come in this morning. And perhaps part of this message is going to be difficult to hear because they're in a difficult place. God, I pray that you would minister grace to their soul this morning. Father, I pray that you would remove distractions from us. Father, that you would allow us to hear the still, small voice of the Spirit of God speaking. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. No surprise, our lives are actually lived in relationship with other people, right? It's, it's just inescapable. I mean, it's how you were designed. So you're, think about this. You're born into a family relationship, and then it doesn't take very long, and we quickly develop kind of childhood relationships. Maybe you still have childhood friends. And then we go off to school, or we have work, and we have relationships that begin to form there, and then we have social relationships, and then we have romantic relationships, right? And then we have children, and then family relationships begin to expand, and that's because the human experience is marked by relationships, And because it is marked by relationships, we're also painfully aware that relationships are just not easy. I mean, how many of us, probably all of us, don't raise your hand, but you could say that all of us have experienced close relationships, only to see those relationships just kind of fall apart really dramatically to the place where now, all of a sudden, we view somebody that we were in close relationship with as an enemy, Can you think about anybody right now, even in your seat this morning, you'd say, man, yeah, we were close at one time, but I would consider them an enemy. I'm not saying that's a right response, I'm just saying that's a human response, right? So what in the world happens in those moments? Well, disagreements turn to arguments that turn to unforgiveness, that turns to bitterness, that turns to hate, that leads to this ending of our relationships, Like, I get it. Like, without a doubt, there is a complexity to our relationships in in trying to understand why it is that they they fall apart, why it is that they're so difficult. But can, can I be honest with you and tell you that I don't know how many times as a pastor and a counselor now for a long time that a lot of times here's what, here's what I hear from somebody. Somebody will come to me and say, you know what, Pastor? The other person in the relationship that I'm in, they're just a little bit more at fault. They're the one that kind of needs fixed. It goes like this. This is always how the conversation goes. Well, I'm not perfect, but... And then they fill me in on this long list of all the ways that their spouse or their, their friend has now offended them in some way, right? Always goes like that. 
Here's the truth I just want you to hold on to for a moment. We are deceived into believing our greatest relational problems exist because of other people. So I've been married, been with my wife, Jen, for 24 years this month. Our anniversary is in January, so 24 years this January that we've been married, started dating 24 years ago, and listen, surprise, surprise, being married to me has not always been peaches and cream. I was as shocked as you are to hear that. Years ago, um, man, years ago, we were struggling in marriage. I don't know if that's ever been your story, but we were struggling in marriage to the place where uh, the reason that my wife and I do biblical counseling in the ways that we have done it for years is because we actually sought out um, a biblical counselor. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. The week before we went, I remember thinking to myself, okay, I, I know that I've got some issues that I need to work on, but please, Lord, if you will just fix her, <laughs> that, that would make things so much better. Oh, it gets worse because I actually told her that. <laughs> you know, if we go and he fixes you, like, things are going to be fantastic. Uh, man, things to not say even if you're thinking that. A week on the other side of their very first session that I met with um, that council, we met together. And I'll, I'll remember her sitting next to me, my wife, and, and just in tears and sorrowfulness. And, and so I pondered that, and, and a week later, I remember thinking, it's not her, it's me. And in that moment, I realized my biggest difficulty, my greatest challenge was that just Aaron had a pride problem, I lacked humility. See, the Bible says that one of the greatest problems we face in relational difficulties is tied directly to a lack of humility. Yet, it says that we're called to live with humility with one another because why? Because it's representative of the way that we're to live with God. Do you know that every sin is a statement of pride that says we know what's best for us? Every sin. Every time we choose to walk in to disobedience, it says this, I know what's right, God knows what's wrong. Now, I know that we don't rationalize like that. None, none of us are, are in the moment pondering, and I think I'm going to dive into this, and that's because I don't believe that, that what God says is right. Now, there's a deception that happens there that just says, God is, God is wrong, I'm right, and no wonder human relationships are such a mess. So if we're going to talk about humility, as Peter describes it here, let's define it for just a moment. Or maybe, maybe what humility begins to look like, because I think it's this. It's just the freedom from pride and arrogance. It's just a freedom from pride and arrogance. Here's the challenge for us. It's to know that pride has a lot of forms. It's just not that outward arrogance. It's just not that, it's just not that person that you're all thinking of right now who's got an attitude or a certain action that makes it really clear that they're arrogant. Like pride has these more subtle forms. It's deceptive in its nature. It's that thing that sneaks into our life and we don't even realize that it's there. Remember when... Uh, in the Genesis account, the serpent, Satan, 
tempts Eve, and what does he say to her? Did God really say? And in that moment, we're going to suppose that obviously because she sinned and that Adam followed that, that Eve said, eh, maybe not. And pride sneaks in, and it becomes easy to sin, and what's the immediate impact? What's the very first thing that happened in that moment? I mean, there was cataclysmic consequences for all eternity. But in that moment, relationships between God and man and Adam and Eve were severed in a moment, weren't they? Eve said, the serpent made me do it. Adam did what Aaron did. The woman you gave me, God made me do it. Jonathan Edwards, he's a pastor, Puritan at the time of the Great Awakening. He he says this about pride. Pride is the very first sin that entered into the universe and the last one to be rooted out. It's, it is God's most stubborn enemy. And so because pride actually began our problem, we're going to begin the series as we walk through these next seven weeks with humility. And I want us to discover how is it that I can live for the glory of God as we live relationally with one another because the gospel empowers us to actually humble living. So I'm going to give us three implications that I think really rise from this text. And here's my hope, that it pushes us towards a growing humility. Because here's what I'm certain of. That as humility increases, as it becomes a greater reality in your life, relational difficulties decrease. They become sweeter. They become more honoring to God. So let's look at and see what God's Word has to say about these implications that I think rise for us that I hope we can hold on to today. And here's the first one I want to give you. Humility is this. It's seen in submission. It's just seen in submission. Say the word submission today in our culture, and what do you get? Like fireworks, right? Submission. Even when we're talking about willing submission seems to agitate our souls because just a thought that we have to submit ourselves in any form to anybody goes against the sin nature of our hearts and a culture that just celebrates autonomy. Like to serve oneself by never submitting to anyone or anything, it's the most celebrated virtue in all of our culture today. But here's the problem, because God's word links humility with submission. See, look at what the text says when Peter writes this, humble ourselves, what does he say? Under the mighty hand of God. So from this text and a lot of other ones that we could look at that we just don't have time to, to really explore today, we know that humility in, it, in this case is first seen in a submission to Christ Jesus. First seen in submission to Christ. Listen, just consider this. Salvation doesn't come without submission, does it? Obeying God does not come without submission. In our culture, in our work, in our church relationships, none of those things begin to flourish without submission because submission is believing in God's right design for human flourishing. In verse 5, Peter uses this word, subject. And he says this. He says we are called to subject, where that word also could be submit ourselves, to those that God has placed over us. 
So the context that he's writing here is leadership of the church. He's talking about how we're to live under eldership. That's the context. And the word specifically, subject, it has a military meaning. So if you're to translate it out of the original languages, you could also write this, to line up underneath. I just want you to think for a moment about what we're being commanded to do. Because if we won't submit in humility to those who God has placed over us for our own good, then your voluntary humility with one another in any relationship, that's nearly impossible. See, if we won't submit to the Lord, why in the world would we submit to one another? The problem that every single one of us faces, the problem that Aaron faces on a daily basis is this. The pervasiveness of sin sets our hearts, sets my heart against submission, and it sets it towards myself. That means, you know what? That it's possible for you to even submit externally and still not be a humble person. I don't know, you'll, you'll get to hear some of my stories as I uh, preach the word just because I have a lot of them, but I spent 18 years in law enforcement. So 10 of those was my career, then God called me in the pastor and I worked another, I worked another eight years or nine years uh, just kind of part-time while I pastored. And, and so I have a lot of crazy stories. Let me tell you, one of the things that I least liked to do is write traffic tickets. I don't know why. I just hated writing traffic tickets. But I had to write traffic tickets, and so I would stop somebody for some kind of infraction. And man, if it rose to the level that I had to write a ticket, you know they did something. Write a ticket out. Now, listen, I don't know how they do it today. I think they actually print it on a computer. But back then, you actually had a ticket book, right? This metal thing. Carbon copies, I'm dating myself. I started 25 years ago. You, you had this carbon copy thing, and you took it back up, and you said, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to issue you a citation. I need you to sign right here. Oh, man, that fireworks right there. Like, how many times? I'm going to sign that thing. Okay, this is simple. The signature is not admitting guilt. The signature is simply stating that either you're going to pay the citation or you're going to show up in court. It's really simple. I'm not signing it. All right, this is simple. Don't sign it. Go to jail. What? You're really going to take me to jail? No, that's what the law says I have to do. I really don't want to take you to jail. I want to go eat lunch, but (laughs) sign it or we're both going to go to lunch. angry signatures. I mean, I can't tell you. People, this is a sidebar. People, when they're really angry, they sound like that. You ever notice that? (laughs) What do I tell you that? Because that person submitted, but it was an external submission, right? There there was no, I wasn't going to actually invite them to my house. Hey, we've started such a great relationship. Why don't you come on over and let's spend some time together? That kind of submission never leads to harmony in relationships. Just try that in your marriage. Because no one, none of us, honestly, with all, the, with all the laughter there, none of us want to be living with somebody who just lives under a forced submission. So how do we submit in humility? We just got to start by seeing and admitting that we're prideful in the per- first place. Like we just, we've got to be honest with ourselves. 
And the reason that that is so hard is because we actually believe that, that pride is puffed up, arrogant, loud-talking person who can't stop talking about themselves all the time. Like That's what we view pride as, but really pride is sneaky. I've already told you that it's sneaky. So I'm going to give you some diagnosing questions that might help us see through some of our blindness a little bit. I want you to think about these questions in the context of relationships with your kids, with your spouse, with your coworkers, whatever it looks like. So when people disagree with you, do you feel the need to argue and to prove your position? Like if that's your first inclination, right? Because what's really going on underneath the surface there? Like we we think we know best. How about this? Do you inwardly react when people criticize you? And so when somebody lays some criticism at your feet, whether it's well-deserved or not, What's your internal reaction? And do you know that fear of man, the Bible calls it fear of man, the way that we respond to criticism in our soul is actually a form of pride? Do you, do you find it difficult to admit that you're wrong? Like Aaron, in marriage, I had a lot of years where I'm like, I'm not wrong about this. She's crazy and I'm not wrong. Are you quick to correct others when they make a mistake? Or it gets even a little bit like, ugh. Do you do things for praise and compliments? Think about that for just a moment. You're, you're in the office and you're like, hey, if I do this, so-and-so is going to tell me how awesome I am. How do you react when you receive when you do not receive credit that you're due. You nailed it this week. And no one notices. Are you hurt when those who you dislike are honored? Isn't that hard? Remember I talked about kind of an introduction, how often we can make the people that were closest to us our enemies? And then we have to actually see them honored in some way. And we're like, that is so unfair. I don't know, maybe the Lord has just brought you to a place where you know even this morning that your lack of humility is one of the reasons you've had really tough relationships. I mean, maybe that you've started to see this morning you're the problem. I told you it was going to be a little challenging, right? Aaron, second message in, like he's going to step on every toe we have. Like, welcome to Aaron's preaching. Like, listen, God beats the daylights out of me as I study for this thing. Because I had to admit, like, often in my relationships, I'm the problem. With my kids, with coworkers, in life groups. Man, maybe God has just brought you to the place where you start to see that, and it's just dishonoring to God. If that's where you're at, I, I just want to say that I'm grateful to God for that. Like, yes, you may need to repent. You may need to seek forgiveness. You maybe, will, you, you maybe uh, have to be willing to do some of the really hard things to restore relationships, but there's hope. There's actually hope. I'm going to give you something that you can do that's going to be our second implication. The moment that you walk out of this place today, and that's this, that humility is not just seen in submission, but it's attitude in action. 
It's attitude and action. Look at verse 5, the second half of verse 5. Peter writes this, clothe yourself in humility. Clothe yourself in humility. So the word clothe carries the idea of, of a person who puts on an apron, right, in order to serve someone else. So you could define this word in the original languages. And I'm thinking that it's probably possible that Peter had in mind Jesus in the Last Supper when he gets up and he puts the robe on and he washes the disciples' feet. Because he's, he's writing this and he, and he uses that same word. So I grew up, um, I grew up in a couple of different churches um, as a kid. My teenage years were, uh, were kind of in a, were in a Baptist church, but in my early days I was in a small denomination called Grace Brethren Church. Uh, great church, great, great folks. But there was, there was one thing we did that I do not understand to this day, and I've been pastoring for a long time. We did, uh, quarterly, we did the Lord's Supper. Why God was only pleased with it quarterly, I can't answer that for you either. But we did it once a quarter. We did it on Sunday night. We had a little meal with the world's most worst sandwiches ever. And then we would break up into groups, and men with men and women with women, and we'd go, and we'd put on the aprons, and we'd wash one another's feet. Listen, I still have scars from that. Like when you're about eight years old, there is no amount of washing some old guy's feet <laughs> that is ever exciting. Ever. And I do not know the point, other than it was a vivid illustration of what attitude and action as we serve in humility one another. Because the reality is, is that I can look back and I vividly remember, and it brings you to that place where you had to have wondered what it was like when Jesus stops in that moment at the end of supper, he's going to be crucified, he wraps himself in an apron, and in the greatest displays of humility that night and the next morning, the ultimate displays of humility will serve those who do not deserve to be served. Jesus is just the embodiment of that humility. It came out in that willingness to serve. And I want you to think about this. When Jesus wrapped the apron around himself, he knew that one was going to betray him and the rest would abandon him except one. Man, here's the point. We can't have the attitude of humility and it just not come out in our actions. Because a humble attitude by nature will be lived out in actions towards one another. Increasing humility in your life will respond, even in the tough times, for those who are going to betray and abandon you. As we walk through these one another's this summer, I want you just to ask yourself a question. So if you're a note taker, maybe write this question down and then come back to it as we go through this series. How would my relationships look if I put the attitude of humility into action in my relationships? How would my relationships look if I put the attitude of humility into action in those relationships? Because what I think for some of you, you're going to experience radical relational transformation. When I see this play out in the counseling room between married couples, I can't tell you how many times I see radical relational change. It's amazing to watch. But for others, some of you, nothing's going to change regardless of how you do. 
And man, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, right? I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just saying this. If you go into this and your only purpose for living in humility is for relational transformation, then you don't get humility in the first place. It's not the point. It's the byproduct, but it's not the point. Humility is this attitude and action that serves other people regardless of the response. And it is not doing something in hopes that we get something in return. You know what that's like, right? You have kids? Mine are older, but I still get this. Um, It's this sweet voice from my now college-aged children. Uh, Daddy, you're not five. Daddy, will will you do this if I right? It's an exchange deal. And what they're offering is, like, I'll do this for you, Dad, if you'll do this for me. Or the spouse that withholds intimacy just to punish, or the friend who's at our side only when we have something to give. Man, humility says, I'm going to serve even in those moments. When I know that the other person is just doing it in order to get something from me, because humility is attitude and action. So here's some ways. I can't think of all of the ways, but here's some ways that that might look for you in the context of your life. It's choosing to love one another without any condition or expectation whatsoever. One of the places I often will start with, uh, with couples in the, in the marriage counseling room is this. What expectations wrongly have you placed upon your spouse that they are now failing to meet and you're aggravated about? It's unmet expectations. Choosing to love is to love in humility without condition or expectations, and that looks like this. It looks like that spouse who faithfully serves their terminally ear spouse. Humility looks like the parents who are like relentless in their pursuit of a wayward child who only takes from them. Some of you, that's your story. You're like frustrated this morning. The only thing you get from your your wayward child is a phone call that says, can I have, can I have, can I have? That relentless pursuit, by the way, is not giving them everything they want. But it is pursuing them in the good news of the gospel that rescues and redeems them. It looks like a uh, friendship that's in a season where you have to give emotionally and maybe even physically, even though your friend cannot do that for you in return whatsoever. Looks like this. It looks like we submit to one another in the places and to the people that God has called us to submit. Let me give you some examples of that. You have a boss you can't stand, you still submit with joy. You experience deep church hurts from leaders and you you still submit because to honor God is to trust the imperfect and sinful people that God has placed over us. Can I give you a shocking statement? I will fail you. Like I will. Like, I will not meet all of your expectations. Johnny won't, Mark won't, Gray won't, Luke won't, the elders won't, Ray won't, right? We will fail you at times in the expectations. 
And yet, as you joyfully submit to those who God has placed over you, it's because of the growing and increasing humility that recognizes that is to honor God even in the sinfulness of human beings. It looks like this, to, su- to submit to God's design for marriage and sexuality because doing so honors God even when you believe it's the cause of your unhappiness. Oh, I hear that a lot. Like, you don't understand, Pastor. Oh, I understand. I just know what God says. Romans talks about doing one another in honor. It's, it's outdoing one another in honor instead of working to receive the honor. That's what humility looks like. It's those moments where we, we highlight another's accomplishments, even if we know ours are more significant in the moment. Just a couple more, because I think you're getting the point, right? It's to carry the burdens physically and emotionally of one another instead of avoiding each other. In a couple weeks, we'll explore this a little bit more, but it's we've forgiven one another fully and freely and forever because we've been forgiven so much. My friends, let me just assure you that serving one another's ways only happens because the Lord has done a work in you, right? It only happens that way. Because I've already said at the beginning, the world says you've been mistreated, you return that mistreatment with mistreatment. But God has worked in our lives because of the gospel, and he is wringing out our tendencies towards pride. He's working to humble us, and that's a hard thing. But we do that because we know that it honors God in the ways that we love one another. I'm going to close with this third implication that I want us to see, and that's this, that humility, not only is it seen in submission, not only is it our our attitudes and actions, but it is also a grace to grow. In the last half of verse 5 and verse 6, we see these statements. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So at the proper time, he may exalt you. I want you to listen to me as I make this statement. Do you know that the Lord will humble you, not because he dislikes you, but because he loves you? God works in your life as a means of his grace. And here's what that means. It means that his his grace for you, it didn't stop at your salvation. But grace is a continuing, it's an ongoing work in your life. Man, even those things that are really difficult are actually graces of God. And they're meant to grow you in Christ-likeness. Suffering is a grace. The difficult marriage is a grace. The wayward child is a grace. Hard biblical community is a grace. So just ask yourself this question. What have you, what have I viewed in life as a nuisance or an obstacle to be overcome, a goal to be achieved, or a suffering to be avoided that in reality it's God's gracious work of bringing you to increased humility. Like I, I can't answer that for you, but I want you just to ponder that for a moment. What are those things that he is doing right now that you'd rather avoid, or it's just something that if I could get on the other side of this, if I can achieve this, if I can accomplish this, life is going to be better rather than understanding that what God is doing in the moment of it is he is teaching you through it. It's what, chapter, or it's what the first, chapter, uh, first couple of verses of 1 Peter said. It's the sanctifying work. 
when Peter just pens these words, I wonder, like I wonder what in the world he was thinking about. I wonder if he remembers his own, his own personal pride, his own humbling. I wonder if he knew that the grace for him to grow was going to be so hard. And I wonder if he was grateful for it. Remember Peter? Denies Christ three times. Runs away determines he's just going to give it all away, go back to fishing, and Jesus has other plans. You see, his pride had created an opportunity to flee. Jesus uses it to grow him. Because now the once proud, now humbled, then exalted Peter has actually been grown in grace. I think for us, we a lot of times respond like Peter. When pride, maybe even as this morning, is exposed, it creates opportunities to run from Jesus when God is actually using them in, in our lives to bring about a humbling. Pride, when exposed, embarrasses us. We want to run and hide from it. We don't want our faults. We don't want our failures to be exposed. We want to move towards self-dependence when we experience those dark and difficult days. Why? Because in our own pride, we might believe that God is not for me. We actually begin to write a narrative in our head that says, not only is God not for me, he's actually probably against me. And so I'm the only one that in this moment can change my circumstances. Don't believe the lie. Jesus, excuse me, rather Peter, is going to quote a proverb in verse 5 when he says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's the point. Proud people trust in themselves, but God, God gives grace as a means to bring about humility in us so that we might trust the Lord through all things. So what's our response to all of that? What's our, what do we, we take those things this morning, what do, you, what do you do with that? Well, verse 6, he writes it pretty clearly for us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. See, that word exalt actually means this, that he will lift you up, he will rescue you, he will deliver you. So when grace grows you in humility, then your trust will actually be in the Lord. Isn't that good news? <laughs> humility above all else, it trusts in the Lord. It trusts that he is for you. It trusts that he is working all things in you for your good and his glory. So my friends... Go from this place today, not discouraged that God has exposed your pride, but encouraged that he is bringing you to humility in a place that will trust the Lord in all of the relationships, in all of the difficult and dark places that you face this morning, knowing that he does it because he loves you that much. <laughs>